when we think about ideas on sustainability in travel, that they all really want specific stories, not broad stories. So meaning don't tell me that I have to take a train versus a plane to be more sustainable. Tell me about a specific train company that's doing something interesting in that space. Welcome back, everyone, to Travel Media Lab podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer, writer, storyteller, community builder, podcaster, and entrepreneur. I work with publications like National Geographic Traveler, The New York Times, Lonely Planet, and more, and travel to interesting places around the world, producing stories that I'm really, really excited about. Travel Media Lab is my platform for helping you break into the travel media space where we share insights, tips, advice, and stories from people working in the industry. Today, I want to bring to you a discussion we recently had inside The Circle, our membership in which we help you get your stories published with ongoing support, encouragement, opportunities, and a community as you establish yourself in the travel media space. This February in the circle, I shared the insights gleaned from the IMM Travel Media Conference I attended a few weeks earlier. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that IMM Travel Media is a conference that I really recommend to anyone who is just starting in the industry to pay attention to because that's where you get a lot of contacts and a lot of really important conversations about the future of the industry and about how to do our work better. So this is a conversation that we're going to be hearing today. It comes from the circle, from our membership. And just a note that every conversation from the circle that you hear on our podcast is always shared with permission from our members. We never share anything that without first asking our members if they're comfortable for us to be sharing that you know, any of our conversations on the podcast. We dedicated a whole hour to discussing what I learned at the editor panel I attended during the conference, as well as my observations of the travel media industry. We also discussed the circle-wide challenge, pitch challenge, we ran at the beginning of the year, during which our members sent a lot of pitches out, and I'm just so, so proud of their effort. This whole workshop and all of our workshops and conversations, in addition to all the support and community that we offer, are available to you when you join us over at travelmedialab.com slash circle. And before we get into this episode, I want to share with you something our listener Erin shared recently on Instagram about our podcast. She said, I didn't understand why I was struggling to connect with the photos I was posting. I have so many incredible travel memories, but sharing trip photos sometimes feels insufficient. Then it clicked. I've been sharing content, not stories. When we go on a trip, going there isn't a story on its own. Compelling stories have a point of view and spark curiosity. I don't actually like being at the center of what I share. I like to highlight the nature, scenery, moments of connection, and things we learn when we travel. An episode of the Travel Media Lab podcast called Crafting Compelling Stories that comes from season two, that's episode 17, really resonated with me on this topic. Following our curiosity and passions is one powerful way to start creating stories. And then she added a quote from me from the podcast, which said, None of us are good at creating compelling stories in the beginning. 
And that shouldn't stop you because the only way for us to get better is to actually do the work. Thank you so much, Erin, for sharing how our podcast resonated with you. We appreciate you. You can connect with Erin on Instagram. Her handle is at ErinIsExploring. And you can always connect with us at Travel Media Lab and at In Search of Perfect. Share how our podcast is helping you on your journey and we might give you a shout out too. I just love, love, love hearing from our listeners. All right, now let's go into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to share with you the inside, some of the learnings that I got from the conference last week that I attended. But before we do that, I wanted to take a look at our pitch challenge because we are entering our last week of this, this pitch challenge. And I just wanted to get a few thoughts on those of you who are here and who are attending the call today on how is it going for you. And I also see, so I'm in our circle-wide pitch challenge document right now. I also see that there are some, some folks who haven't put in all of their results yet from the previous weeks. So Re, if you're listening to this later on, please take a moment to come and tell us how you did in that document. And Katie, you as well. I think some of yours, your data is missing. So I wish that were true, but <laughs> I am making progress. Awesome. Awesome. And that's, that's the key, right? It's, it doesn't matter what the progress is as long as you're making it. So yeah, just, uh, just whenever you have some time, please update the document. And then when we are meeting next week, next Wednesday is when we're going to be doing like a final, final, let's say overview, final sort of how did it go for you, right? How did each week go? How do you feel? Well, you know, all of that good stuff. But right now, I see that, Nicole, you are just on fire with with how many pitches you've sent, and you have about four left to your goal, which is awesome. I see that Susan has sent a pitch out last week. Yay, Susan. That's awesome. Ilaria as well. Oh, Ilaria looks like she met her goal. Is that right? Yes, Ilaria was on, on, on fire last week as well. So if you're listening to this later, Ilaria, congratulations. Amazing work. Feel free to add some more pitches this week so that you're even sending more out if you have other ideas left. Jolene has sent quite a few pitches out too. And so has Shelly. Oh my goodness. You guys are all doing just so, so amazing. I'm, I'm super excited to see this. So yeah, if either of you, if Nicole or Katie, if either of you wants to sort of comment on how it's going so far, let me know. Otherwise, we'll talk about it more in more details next week when we're wrapping up the challenge. I'll just say it's it's going well. It's pushed me a lot. And I am going to send some more out this week. So I, I should meet my goal. Yay. But thanks. I don't know if I've ever done this many. So thank you. Amazing. Amazing. Isn't it interesting how that works that when you have this sort of environment of, of doing this all together, you're like, oh, I better get this in. <laughs> That's really good. I'm glad to hear that. And of course, Nicole, you're on fire right now. You've had two acceptances, BBC Travel and Toronto Star. And we can't wait to see those stories live. I know you were sharing just before we started recording that you've already gotten the revisions back. So it's moving, it's coming out. And that's super, super exciting. So we're, we're very proud of you. Thank you. Awesome. Katie? Oh, sorry. I know. <laughs> No worries, no worries. If, if you want to add something, feel free. If not, that's that's cool. Next week. Next week, I will have awesome. all my 
Yes. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Okay. Sounds good. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend some time talking about some of the insights that I've gotten from attending the IMM Trav Media Conference last week. And as you guys know, I always advocate for that conference as one of the best sort of places to be when you want to make those connections with tourism boards and with yeah, mostly tourism boards, PR companies, but also publications because editors are attending that conference as well. They're not attending. They're, they're basically attending for the same reason we are, which is to make connections with tourism boards, right? So you're, you're not necessarily meeting them in that structured day of networking. You're meeting them in between, or you're meeting them during breaks, or you're meeting them during lunch, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of kind of like that. So, and for those of you who will be listening to this later or who are new in, in the circle, this is our monthly call that we do at the beginning of the month where we sort of set the theme for the month if we're working on something particular, or it's it's also when I share some of these insights and observations that I've had over the over the previous month. So that's what we're doing today. And usually the way this Travel Media IMM conference is structured, and it was no different this time, is that the first day is dedicated to a summit to which certain media members get invited to. And it's like a shorter or sorry, smaller event in which there is a series of panels, series of discussions with tourism boards, with editors, with partners in the industry. But it's really just like a panel discussion. You know, there's not much short networking happening there. And then on day two is when we do these speed networking work occasions, I guess, which is really intense because it starts at nine o'clock and it goes until 5.30 and it's in 15 minute increments. So it's 9 to 9.15, you have an appointment. 9.15 to 9.30, you have an appointment. And it goes like that. There is some breaks and there is lunch. But by the end of the day, we're all just completely exhausted. In past conferences, I've had somewhere between 20 to 24 appointments on that day. Last week, I had fewer appointments because I was much more sort of strategic with my time and I blocked some slots because, you know, usually I'm back to back to back to back and I just can't I, because by the end of the day, you're just really exhausted. You can barely speak, you know. So this time went a bit, you know, more relaxed for me because I was able to take more breaks. But that's really, you know, that's a really intense sort of day in which you make a lot of connections with people and you got a ton of business cards and you have now a ton of follow-up to do with all these tourism boards and, and everything like that. And we have a full workshop on how to prepare for IMM and how to work with tourism boards. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this today, but I'll just say really quickly that I've once again... I've once again seen how important it is that you have a really good understanding of what your niche is, what your focus is, and what you want to cover. Because when you come to those 15-minute appointments, if you don't have that, they're gonna the, the tourism boards are going to give you a very generic spiel, you know, a very generic paragraph or an overview of what's happening in their destination that they're going to give to everyone. Right. So everybody's going to come away with exactly the same information. And then imagine if we extend this out further to then pitching stories based on that, everybody's going to be pitching the same stories as well, because you're all getting the same information. Right. So it's really important to come to these events with a really good understanding of what is it that you want? Right. What kind of stories are interesting to you? 
And trust me, when they hear that, when you give them that overview of yourself, their ears perk up because most people don't actually do that. Most journalists that come to these events, they don't tell the tourism boards, here is what my specialty is. Here's what my focus is, right? They're just sort of used to this sort of more general overview. And so I noticed again this time that when I told them, this is what I'm specifically interested in, they're like, oh, you know, I have a story just for you. Or, oh, thank you so much because it helps me narrow it down so much, right? So those conversations are super important. And again, look at look through the library of workshops and recordings that we have, because we last year we dedicated quite a bit of time to how to prepare for IMM, how to go through that. So next time you are going to one of those events, you, you can be better prepare, prepared as well. But what I want to spend most of the time talking about today is sharing with you the insights I got during the first day when we had that summit. And particularly, there was a very interesting editor panel where three or four editors came to the stage and they were talking about their publications and they're talking about what they're looking for and some specific questions. So that's what I'm going to share with you guys today. And then we have some time at the end to cover some questions as we go through it. So the three editors I'm going to talk about right now are Nikki Vargas, who is a editor at Photorist Travel, who, by the way, has been on the podcast. So if you haven't yet listened to that interview with her, please do. She's just amazing. Carolyn Treffler, who is an editor at Lonely Planet, and Amanda Finnegan, who is an editor at Washington Post's By the Way column, which is their travel column. And when I when I post this up, I'll send I'll share the links to Caroline. Well, th- all three of them, Nikki, Caroline, and Amanda's Instagram handles, because they're, you know, it's always good to follow <laughs> and see sort of what, what they have going on. So, you know, that was the panel. And then they were asked some very specific questions. And I thought some of them were super interesting. So I'll just go ahead and share them now. So the first question that they had was, what piques your interest in pitching? So when these editors are getting pitches, what is it that they're looking for? You know, what is it that their specific publication is focused on right now? So for Photos Travel, what they're looking for are how-to pieces. So how to travel Europe on a budget, for example. It's a very bad example but it's because it's very broad, but you get the point. It's, it's a how to do something relevant to travel. They're looking for identity stories, for example, traveling in Europe as a disabled individual, right? What does that look like? Personal narratives. So interestingly, you know, all this time for the past six weeks or so, I've been talking about how publications are moving away from personal narratives and more into hard reportage. Well, here's one publication that is very interested in personal narratives, destination inspiration, trends and news. So if anything interesting, new happening at a particular destination you want to write about, if there is any sort of bigger trends that you are uncovering in a particular destination, then they want to see those pitches as well. And by the way, feel free to just as you have questions going on, you know, as, as you have questions come up, actually, feel free to ask me right away. We don't even have to wait until the end of the chat today but we can make it more interactive i have a Um, question about the fodders like i i saw that you put a comment in about my other personal essay i'm trying to get out there so is this new to them because i don't know if i ever seen personal essays on their website like i don't know if that that's something that i'm used to seeing personal narrative right so it's it's maybe not so much a a, I guess, interestingly, question the difference between personal narrative and the personal. <laughs> yeah, good question. 
but a personal narrative is is maybe something that touches upon you know and and I, I an identity story is a personal narrative right it's a story about how i travel to spain as as a as a woman in my 40s or something i don't know just making this up but yeah i think um i don't know if off the top of my head any specific example comes but i'm pretty sure i've seen them publish pieces from a personal point of view before and yeah and she definitely said that they're looking for those as well and then your other question nicole on lonely planets yes i'll get to it in a second okay <laughs> that was exactly the question i had too and i actually approached the editor after she spoke and i asked her exactly that question so stay tuned so what peaks Lonely Planet or what kind of stories does Lonely Planet look for right now? They're looking for local experiences from a local point of view. And they really, she really, really stressed that, you know, and I think that makes sense for them strategically as a guidebook publisher that they really want those local perspectives. But she, she was saying that if you stay, you know, if you, if you're based somewhere or if you stay there for a long time, we really want to hear from you. So they're not so much wanting to hear from somebody who just came in for a few days, experienced the place and they want to pitch about it. They really want those local voices, local perspectives, right? Now, how can you get around that if you're not, for example, stationed in Cairo or based in Cairo, but you really want to do a story on Cairo? How do you get around that requirement? Well, you make sure that in your pitch and in your plan and in your story, you have local perspectives and you're actually talking to people who are from there, right? Who are providing some of that point of view for you. And they're looking for that both on their digital side, which is their, you know, where they publish their stories, but also on the guidebook side. So they're actually in our top five that I posted today. There was a call from Lonely Planet looking for contributors in um, France specifically. But when they're, when they're working with contributors on the digital side, it's always a good way into their guidebook writing side because guidebooks pay very well, actually. It's a, you know, it's a big project and it pays quite well. And I think it's a really nice way to sort of start on the digital side, do several articles for them, you know, establish yourself as an expert or like an, a local expert in that destination. And then, you know, then you can transition to the guidebook side as well, if you want, by the way, right? Because for me, for example, I'm, I've never been interested in guidebook writing, even though I know it pays well, it's a big project. I just, I don't know, I've never been interested in that side of travel writing where I have to give like very specific recommendations on where to go and what, what to do. But, you know, if that's your, if, if that's your jam, then definitely pay attention to Lonely Planet. They're also not so much interested in listicles and roundups as they are in more experiential stories, right? So again, stories about experiences, narrative-driven stories is what they're looking for. And then Washington Post, by the way, which is, again, a, their travel column, they are, if you're not familiar with that column, it's, it's, a, it's a column for a very sort of frugal traveler. And their, you know, the, their guidelines are part of our documents in the circle, so you can check it out later on. But the kinds of stories that this publication is looking for is, interestingly, I, it was very interesting to me how she put it, stories about the reader, not the writer. So they want stories that will be interesting and about the reader, not the writer. So it sounds like they don't really want any personal narratives, but they want stories about frugal travelers and, and, and practical travelers, right? And the practical process of traveling. 
They also want local perspectives, no helicoptering in, and they are interested in stories that talk about the practical process of traveling, right? So getting from A to B, or, you know, maybe it's about efficient train travel, or maybe it's about figuring out how to use miles for your travel, right? Things like that. And then finally, they're also looking for breaking news in the travel industry and larger trend stories, okay? So... You can sort of see the trend here, right? So nobody wants helicoptering in, which I think is great. But what that means for us, because sometimes we do have to take those shorter trips, what that means for us is that we really need to make sure that when we do that, we have local perspectives or local connections that we can tap for the stories so that it's not just our sort of short-term experience that we're talking about, but something much deeper, because that seems to be the trend that all of them have mentioned. They don't want that. And specifically with Lonely Planet, right now, if you go to their, you know, guidelines page, it says that we're closed for submissions. So after the panel, I approached her and I asked her specifically about that. She says that, yes, it's because we are restructuring right now. We're figuring some things out, but we're opening it soon. So stay tuned. That page will be open soon. And by the way, again, on Twitter also, they're posting opportunities because like the one that I just saw where they're looking for France-specific writers as well. So it's like right now, it sounds like they're tapping for specific projects, but pretty soon they will be open to just ongoing submissions as well. Okay, another question that they were asked was, how are you approaching writing about or talking about sustainability in your coverage? So sustainability overall was a big theme for this year's conference. Not surprisingly, right? It's a big topic and it's a big discussion overall in the industry. And so this was the question, how does your publication think about covering sustainability? So some of the trends, I'm not going to break it out by publication, but some of the trends that most of them touched on were, for example, if you're writing about a sustainable hotel, don't just tell me it's a sustainable hotel. Tell me why it's sustainable and how it's sustainable, right? Tell me some of that deeper story about what the hotel has been doing. Some of its journey towards sustainability is what they're interested in. They also want writers to pitch them ideas about what should their readers do to make their travels more sustainable, right? Because we are the experts. We travel so much more than people who are not in the industry. So they look to us for ideas, for opinions, for trends, perhaps investigations on what should the reader do to make their travels more sustainable. They're also interested in stories about economic sustainability, right? So keeping the, the money that comes into the travel industry inside local communities, right? Making those operations more sustainable. So if you have any kind of stories or ideas about that, about economic sustainability, they're all ears as well. Washington Post in particular called out that they really want to see ideas on how climate change affects the reader's travels rather than what can readers do to affect climate change, which was an interesting sort of call out, right? So the way I translated that and understood that is that the readers are not necessarily interested in you know, reducing the number of flights or taking a train instead of a flight, which is what you can do to improve the climate change situation. But they're more interested in stories that say, you know, because of climate change. Well, wait a minute. That's kind of the same thing, isn't it? That's wait. I'm, I'm getting confused now how climate change affects my travels versus what I can do to affect climate change. Wow. I, I just totally 
like confused myself there with that sentence. Maybe what they mean is like, I like I wanted to go to this place, but they're dealing with this issue because of climate change. And so like it affect like so less about like the the uh-huh. the travel, but right. like places you're traveling to back. Yeah, because when I saw that on that, that's that was the eight, what I was thinking. Or like like skiing in Europe, because like you maybe are making plans to go skiing and there's no snow. So it's right. terrible. So how is that affecting their readers? What else can they do while they're there? Well, thank you guys. Is that yes. kind of what you mean? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, exactly. Right. It's 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 yeah. How how are destinations? Maybe a better way to put it is like how are destinations being changed and what we need to think about as travelers rather than what is a specific action that I can do today to affect climate change? Because she was saying basically how the reader and we kind of had a chuckle about it well it's kind of a depressing thought actually that people feel powerless to affect climate change on the individual level they don't feel like their individual actions are really enough or that they're going to make a difference you know so it sounded like for again and that's specific to washington post that their readers have a bit of a fatigue when it comes to that but they are interested in stories about again how you know how destinations are being affected and how travel in general is being affected and all of them made this point that when when we think about ideas on sustainability in travel that they all really want specific stories not broad stories so Meaning, don't tell me that I have to take a train versus a plane to be more sustainable. Tell me about a specific train company that's doing something interesting in that space, right? So, and I think that sort of sentiment goes towards any pitches we do, right? We want specific, not broad, because that's how we make a pitch and an idea really strong. But yeah, they they stress that out for that particular question as well. Then we had a very interesting discussion. We had a discussion about press trips, about them working with writers who go on press trips. And both Washington Post and Lonely Planet said unequivocally, no, we don't accept press trips, which I actually, that was my first time learning that. I thought Lonely Planet does work with people who go on press trips, but sounds like they don't. For footers, It was an unequivocal yes, because we understand the reality of traveling and how, you know, if you go somewhere and you have to pay your own way, then you're basically barely, if even breaking even, you're basically not making any money at all. So they are like, yes, we totally are open to press trips, so come to us. And from that conversation, it migrated into a very interesting conversation on rates, because a very awesome writer in the audience, her name is Lola Mendes. And by the way, she's going to be a guest on the podcast. So stay, stay tuned for that. She actually raised that question. Well, tell me about your rates then. If you don't work with writers who go on press trips, then how much are you paying your writers for them to be able to afford their own travel and do this work, right? And funnily enough, Washington Post dodged the question completely. They didn't answer what the rates were, but they did say that they pay their writers well. So we just have to trust that and and maybe pitch them and have somebody from our community work with them so that we can see what they actually pay them. Lonely Planet mentioned that they pay between three to four hundred dollars per article on their digital site. And of course, guidebook projects can go depending on, you know, how big of a section you you are editing or if you're if you're editing the whole book, it can go into thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to do a guidebook. And then Photos mentioned that their rate is about the same as Lonely Planet, three to four hundred dollars per article. 
So that was the conversation that we had with these three. And one of the reasons why I think it's so cool to attend these conferences is that you see this editor right there, flesh and blood, so to speak, right? Many of them came from our side. Many of them have been freelance writers and then they became editors. So they understand all the dynamics that we have to go through as writers. And they all said pitches, right? Pitches. If you have ideas that fit into what we're describing here, please pitch us. So I thought that was a super interesting panel and I thought it was pretty helpful. So yeah, wanted to share it, share it with you guys. Now, there was one other different panel that we talked about that I will cover next. But before we do, any sort of thoughts or any questions or ideas about what I covered so far with Nikki, Caroline and Amanda? I guess what I was going to say is like, I've kind of discovered that too, when I've been looking at just different pitching guidelines, I'm surprised like BBC, the story I produced, I think they were one of the only people who didn't have a story on the Bhutan trail because Bhutan hosted that press trip and I went on my own. But it is frustrating for us as writers because it's hard. It's hard to like, manage a trip and I mean that was an expensive trip and I just happened to get you know as like a story out of it but I find it a little frustrating and hard but oh well well it's not even a little frustrating right it's a lot (laughs) frustrating yeah it's a lot frustrating and interesting because what they're talking about and and the reason why they have this policy right all of them Washington Post now we know Lonely Planet and also by the way New York Times has a very yeah New York Times yeah they say that it's because they want to um, stain editorial. Oh my goodness, what's wrong with my words today? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Though they don't, they integrity. want it to be like, un- yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, so they want they want to maintain editorial integrity, and that's why they don't do it. But at the same time, those same editors then the next day came and sat and networked with those tourism boards too. By the way. Yeah. And I asked them actually about that. I said, I asked one of them after I was like, wait a minute. So you, you, you're not working with the writers who go on press trips and work with tourism boards, but you're <laughs> going and talking to tourism boards now. And she said that, yes, we are asking them for ideas. We're asking them for news and trends and what's happening, but then we're going to go ahead and write about it ourselves. And we're going to send our writer on our own. And I'm like, well, you could argue that that tourism board might feed you something. And where mm-hmm. like that editorial integrity maybe is not there. I don't know. It's it's so interesting, right? Because the other interesting question to ask there is then who does this policy, who does this policy restrict from writing and from doing these things, right? Mm-hmm. It's only people who are kind of independently wealthy or who are able to go out there and travel and on their own who who yeah. can write some of these stories, you know, and that's just not cool. And I think that's why Fodorus and so many others are like, no, like we understand how this works, right? You need to have that support of a tourism board. And the other thing that I, I always think about is that in this industry, re- reputation matters a lot, a whole lot, you know? So as a writer, If I go with a tourism board and let's say I have an experience that was not good or a hotel that was not good, if I write praises to that experience, well, my reputation is kind of ruined because most of these trips, I'm not the only one who's been there, right? Usually like there's a lot of other people on that trip and we were all part of that experience. And in this industry, people talk also. And a lot of times editors also go to these press trips as well, right? So you can have 
like for example, one of the last press trips I was on, there was you know a couple of writers and photographers, but there was also an editor from a UK publication that was there. And so when you have an experience like that, and then you write something that wasn't true or that wasn't the case, then I don't know how your own reputation can survive that, you know? And I think a lot of writers actually feel this way very strongly in this industry, that we are sort of separating the fact that, yes, we need to be supported by the tourism board to have the experience, but that doesn't mean that we're going to sing praises to the tourism board or, you know, whatever partners when we experience it. And it's not an easy conversation to have. It's a tricky conversation to have, right? Because there are a lot of different arguments on both sides of this that you can you can do. But at the end of the day, if it's not economically possible for most of us to travel on our own dime and to to do this work, then again, like who who does this industry exclude? It ex- excludes most of us, basically, right? So yeah, it was. It's interesting to see that there is fewer and fewer publications that still have that policy. Most of them have, you know, have become much more friendly to press trips. But yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting conversation. Any other thoughts or questions on this? Are you going to be pitching now Washington Post or pitching <laughs> voters? You should definitely pitch voters. But oh, the other thing that that Nikki mentioned is that they have an editor called Eva, I forgot her last name. Eva takes it a point to sit down once a week every week, go through every single pitch in the inbox and respond to it, which I thought was so amazing because we also talk a lot about how oftentimes we don't get any responses and it's so frustrating. Well, voters will respond. And somebody had a question, maybe it was Unicole or someone else in the group that, you know, why shouldn't we follow up with voters? And Katie, you actually responded. It's because they they respond to you in the order in which the, that email was received. So when you follow up, it puts it back to the back of the queue. So that's why, you know, just send them that initial email and just wait. Eventually, they will get back to you. And I thought that was just so cool because their inbox gets overwhelmed as well, just like any other editor, you know, and they, she said, they literally make it a point that like, you know, we're going to sit down and do it on a regular basis. So yeah, work with photos if you can. They're super cool. All right. The other point of discussion that I wanted to add to this conversation, which was also during that first day of the Trump Media IMM conference, a separate panel that was run by three or four different representatives from various indigenous communities around the world. There was, well, there was Canada, Australia, and US actually who were represented in that board. And I thought that was such a wonderful panel. And I thought I should share this with you as well, because this is actually a question that we've also been covering a lot inside the circle, if you remember, right? What gives me the mandate to tell the story? Is this my story to tell? Particularly when thinking about some of these communities, right? And so here's what they had to say on this subject. So the particular question was, how can media work with indigenous communities? Or what can, what should media consider when they want to work with indigenous communities? And they said that, first of all, you should come in with the mentality that you are here to amplify stories that already exist. You're not here to tell your own story about this community. And that was really interesting to me because this is a question that I personally, individually struggle with a lot. And we even had this discussion in the circle recently, right, Nicole? I think it was you thinking about, well, should I include the LGBTQ camps in the story if I'm not part of that community, right? I think it's an interesting conversation because it's like, well, you have to be part of every single 
you know, identity in order to write about that identity? I think it really depends. It really depends on the story. In a lot of the cases, you can view yourself as a conduit, not the person who tells their own opinions and perspectives on this, right? So in this case, amplifying rather than telling stories is really that, right? You're there to listen. You're there to to convey the, the message or convey the story, but exactly how they told you to convey it, not, you know, adding your own things, not trying to tell your own story here, if that makes sense. So for me, it's a subtle but very important difference, actually. And I even started rethinking about some of my ideas that I had and, you know, some things that I haven't actually pitched because I'm like, well, I don't know if I should be the one pitching it. But now with that insight, I'm like, well, again, if I view myself as a conduit to the story, I'm just a writer who takes notes, right? To so takes notes from this person that I'm interviewing. And then that's that's the story that I'm selling. Then in that case, I think you can do that with anyone, really. If you approach it with that humility and that respect that I'm just a conduit here, I'm not here to, you know, bring my own biases or whatever into this conversation. So that was their point, which I thought was really great. They They said also that media should ask a lot of questions which also makes sense, right? We don't want, again, to assume things. We don't want to sort of bring our own biases into this work. And you want to ask yourself, where does the ownership of this story lie? Who is the owner of the story? Again, like, am I the owner of the story? Or are these people who are telling me, you know, who, who I'm interviewing, who I'm engaging with, are they the owners of the story? And it's interesting because, again, like, once you have that mindset and once you you view it through that lens, I feel like all kinds of doors open up. Because again, like I'm not the owner of the story, right? This community is the owner and this is what they're telling me. And it's and it's my sort of honor to be the conduit for the story, which I thought was very helpful. They say, be open-hearted, listen well, ask a lot of questions, take your time, build relationships. They stressed it so much. And I actually talked about this before too, right? With that Bedouin community example in Jordan, that you want to especially if you want to do some sort of bigger stories or stories that shine a light on a culture or on a community, you don't want to just to reach out to somebody cold, you know, in a cold email and say, hey, you know, give me give me everything about your culture and your community, right? You, you really want to start building those relationships. You really want to be genuinely interested in that community and in their culture and what they have to say, right? Rather than just to be very sort of cringe-inducing, you don't want to just score some points by doing an indigenous story, right? Because that would be like the worst case scenario that you're doing this because of that, because it's cool to do that, right? No, like, I think that it's it's all about the intention with which we come to these stories, right? If we're genuinely interested, if we're spending time, if we're building relationships, then you can sense that, right? People can sense how you show up authentically or not in spaces. And so if you take the time to build relationships, to to be authentic with your intentions, then these communities are very open to welcoming you in and sharing some of these stories. Because that was another question that I always have is that, well, you know, why, right? Why would they want to do this? Why would they want to open up like that to an outsider, let's say, from a community? And I think that's why, right? If you're if you're genuine, if you're authentic, if you're genuinely curious about this this culture and this community, then I think they can definitely sense that. And finally, the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, they have a resource up on their website that talks a lot about some of these things and about more even than than we could mention today. They have a media style guide, by the way, which talks about language 
for example, right? The language that you should use, some of the questions you want to ask. And I'll link to that as well when I post post this call so you guys can can check it out. But overall, I thought it was super interesting and super helpful because I, for sure, I'm always thinking about that with some of the stories that I want to do is like, you know, definitely right, uh, grappling with some of these questions. And I thought that was a good sort of entry point into that discussion. So yeah, that was that was my takeaways. Those were my takeaways from the conference, from the summits. It was a really awesome, awesome time. I saw so many people in person that I've you know only met via Zoom, and that was really cool. So definitely recommend attending. Plan on this next year, definitely for you, Katie and Nicole, as you have some pieces published. And hopefully I'll meet you there in person at the conference next year. <laughs> that should be cool. Any thoughts on this last part that we discussed on media working with indigenous communities? I was going to say that I think that's great. Like what you said, I noticed the Canadian indigenous community, their websites is so amazing. There's like so much information. And even when I was doing that research on Hawaii, they had their own toolkit as well. So I thought it was really helpful. If I'm ever going to work with communities like that in the future, I'm going to make sure to reach out and look and do some research before I do. So thanks. Yeah, that's actually a great point, Nicole. Thanks for bringing that up because that's exactly it, right? That should be your first step in figuring out where to go next with some of these story ideas is in a lot of cases, not all, by the way, because we talked about this too at the panel that they were saying how U.S. tourism boards are sort of lagging behind their Canadian and Australian counterparts in bringing some of these to the forefront. And having and making sure that the indigenous communities in the US are really, you know, part of this effort and actually part of the tourism world, right? So, you know, there's still work to do there. But yes, in Canada and in Australia, they're doing much better work in being that first point of contact, being that resource point point for resource. So yeah, that's that's a really good point, Nicole. I was just going to say, I think it's interesting, a lot of things you've talked about today, like whether it's indigenous communities or more publications saying we don't just want people like dropping in, right? That this Mm -hmm. idea of like getting to know people and be telling their stories through your writing seems to be like a theme that touches in a lot of these areas. Yes. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's really it. And that's where, you know, developing yourself as a local expert in your area is something that can be a, a good strategy to pursue as well, right? Because I mean, Katie, you live in New York, there's so many things happening in New York. And you know, why, why not start establishing yourself if, if that's indeed your sort of plan of where where you want to be you know for the next let's say three to five years or so or you know Nicole for you Minneapolis I see this local expertise was always important it's more important than ever now to do that so why not right why not do that and that's why I'm moving to Barcelona and we'll be the (laughs) we'll start becoming not right away of course but hopefully we'll start becoming an expert there as well but yeah that's that's really that's really true Amazing, friends. Well, hopefully this was a helpful discussion for you. I just really, I was frank, like taking notes like this when I was sitting there and I, I was very excited to, to share those notes with you. So hopefully they are helpful to you as you start thinking about your own pitches going forward. And again, our last week of the pitch challenge is this week. So let's, let's finish it strong. 
And I'm super proud of all your efforts so far. You guys are doing just so well. It's been so cool to see everyone's pitches. And I'm looking forward to next week when we have our wrap up of the pitch challenge and sort of see how we did and what we learned and all that. Katie says, I have a quick New York Times question when you're done with this. Okay, awesome. Well, actually, you can you can answer you can ask you can ask it now. That's fine. I tried to search some of the places in the circle. I didn't think I saw anyone comment on this, but so the New York Times doesn't have pitch guidelines. But I think yeah. (laughs) So does that mean they're not open for pitches? Like how do you know how they specifically work? They they are open for pitches. There is an editor who's been at the travel desk for a very long time. And she is notorious for opening your emails and even responding sometimes, but then kind of ghosting you. Okay. So I will send, I will share her email in the circle after we, we post it up. I've I've gotten close to working with her a few times, but then she just kind of disappeared on me. I think her name is Amy, if I remember correctly, but I'll I'll look it up. But yeah, there is no guidelines for yep. the times but they do have a travel desk and they do receive pitches and in a lot of cases she even responds to your pitches and in some cases she's even interested in your pitches but then she kind of falls off so at least that's been my experience you know but yeah definitely pitch her if you have a story that you think is a fit to their travel vertical and what they're doing then yeah i mean why not absolutely that's what i well i'm trying to like have the mindset of like start with big like don't be afraid of that and you know when they they did 36 hours in Dakar but they haven't done a lot of specific stories so I'm hoping we'll see, we'll see. definitely pitch them but definitely share the pitch in the in the yeah, oh yes yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. awesome yay Katie pitching New York Times I love it awesome well have a wonderful rest of your week everyone thank you so much for listening today I hope you enjoyed this workshop brought to you by our membership, The Circle. If you have a dream of getting your travel stories published and working with some of the most exciting travel publications out there, consider joining us in The Circle. Our members have been published in some of the most incredible publications out there, like Condé Nast Traveler, like BBC Travel, and many others. In The Circle, we have conversations like the one you just heard on a regular basis, and we provide a whole lot of support, opportunities, and community in the travel media space. You can get started with The Circle for as little as $27 a month. Visit travelmedialab.com circle to learn more. Thank you again for listening today, and stay tuned for next week.